Can we turn together to uh, Nehemiah 13, which is pages 499 and 500 in the Church Bibles, Nehemiah 13. And let me pray before we go any further. Father, these are the scriptures of which Paul said to Timothy, they are are able to make us wise for salvation, and they are profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. Now may your word, this word, do its work in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may be complete equipped for every good work. Amen. Amen. Last Sunday evening, if you were here and can remember that far back, you will recall that we uh, we joined the Jewish people in a great celebration. And they had every reason to celebrate. They had been returning from exile in drips and drabs over the previous 100 years or so, but they had been a very demoralized people, lacking in leadership, and with their holy city, Jerusalem, pretty much in ruins. Nehemiah was himself a Jew and a senior official in the court of the Persian emperor. He gained permission from his boss, to go back to Jerusalem to help sort things out there. And in the earlier chapters of the book, we learned how Nehemiah supervised a great reformation, which included at least the following three things. Rebuilding the walls, despite persistent opposition from people like Sanballat and Tobiah. Renewing the worship, with the public reading of God's word, with prayer and confession of sins, and the signing of a solemn covenant, uh, second half of chapter 10. The people in that covenant pledged not to intermarry. They pledged to honour the Sabbath day, and they pledged to give their tithes to support the ministry of the temple. In short, they undertook to conduct themselves as God's distinctive people set apart for God's service. And then uh, the Reformation under Nehemiah and also Ezra included repopulating the city of Jerusalem so that it it could become a living, thriving, worshipping community once again. Rebuilding the walls, renewing the worship, repopulating the city. That's pretty much the story of the first uh, 10 or 11 chapters of this book. And then, in the second half of chapter 12, comes the great celebration uh, to celebrate the, uh, the rebuilding of those protective, those imposing, uh, those proud walls surrounding the holy city. And the people marching on top of those newly repaired city walls with two choirs and musical instruments and much singing and shouting. Chapter 12 and verse 43 is one of the most joyful verses in the whole of Scripture. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. 
the women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. But we asked towards the end of our time together last Sunday evening, did it last? Did the people keep their promise not to neglect the house of God? Chapter 10 and verse 39. Did those scoundrels, Tobiah and Sanballat, finally slink off and leave God's people in peace? And what now were we to make of God's ancient promise to Abraham, that he would make of his descendants a great nation, and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed? Well, excuse me, well, Nehemiah too was interested in questions like that. And so in chapter 13 and verses 6 and following, we find him returning to Jerusalem to see if all is well. But he's horrified by what he finds. All his previous hard work seems to have been undone. Nehemiah finds in particular the following three things. He finds firstly the worship compromised. That's chapter 13, verses 7 to 14. Again, I remind you that that the people had promised in chapter 10 and verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. But the temple is in fact now being thoroughly neglected. The people had stopped paying their tithes and offerings, and the Levites who ministered in the temple who relied for their support on those tithes and offerings, were thus not supported, and so they went back to work in the fields outside Jerusalem and left their posts in order to support themselves. The worship of God was compromised, Nehemiah found. Secondly, he he found that the, the Sabbath was under threat, verses 23 to 28. The people had promised, chapter 10 and verse 30, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter 10, verse 31, to honour the Sabbath day. But now it's a working day just like any other, full of commercial comings and goings. The Sabbath is being neglected. And then thir- uh, thirdly, Nehemiah found that the family is under threat, verses 23 to 28. The people had promised in chapter 10 and verse 30 not to enter into mixed marriages. But the men had married both Ammonites and Moabites and other foreign women. Now let's be clear here. The issue here is not primarily one of race, but of idolatry. If the Hebrew children cannot speak Hebrew, they will not learn God's law or be able to enter into the worship of the one true and living God. They will rather imbibe the false religions of their mothers, and in a single generation, everything true and right about the worship of God would be lost. Worship compromised, Sabbath neglected, family under threat. Chapter 13 is a story then of broken promises, and poor Nehemiah is beside himself. 
and he has to step in once again to sort the whole mess out. He restores the system of tithes and offerings. He brings back Sabbath observance. He makes everyone promise once again not to enter into mixed marriages. Question, did Nehemiah overstep the mark in his reforms? In prohibiting all marriages with foreigners, had he perhaps been a bit too unbending? Do you remember Ruth? Was not Ruth a Moabitess woman? And was Ruth not welcomed into the family of God's people? Did she not become the grandmother of King David himself? Is she not named a number, uh, along with a number of other women of um, unusual background and descent in the genealogy of Jesus himself in Matthew's Gospel? Then again is chapter 13, uh, the account here, a bit too full of Nehemiah saying, I did this, I did that, I made them promise, I beat them up, I pulled out their hair. Does Nehemiah show just a little bit too much self-interest when he pleads, not once, not twice, but three times, Lord, remember me for this? Did Nehemiah overstep the mark in his reforms? Well, maybe. Maybe he did. But you know, there is a place for outrage. There is a place for anger. I remember back to when I was a, a very new Christian. And um, although I'm not proud of the attitude I took, I was quite angry with other Christians, particularly in my family and those in the church that I was attending. Because my attitude was, why didn't somebody tell me about this before? I was 19 and I'd just come to understanding an appreciation, an experience of the gospel. And I felt upset and, yes, a bit angry that nobody had really told me about that before. Maybe they had and I hadn't been listening. So I don't defend or justify my anger, but there was at that time in my family and beyond something, I would say, of a mini-revival. Not just I, but a number of others were pulled up sharp, in part, I think, by my anger, by my rebuke to think and take perhaps more seriously the truth and the power and the experience of the gospel of Jesus. Yes, maybe I overstepped the mark, but there is a place for rebuke, a place even for outrage. There was another, you will recall, who took decisive action to rid the temple of abuses. Who was it again? Jesus. And both Nehemiah and Jesus could say, zeal for God's house has consumed me. Yes, a place for outrage, even if Nehemiah did overstep the mark. I would like to remind you again of um, Alan's comment earlier that Nehemiah 13 is the closing chapter of the Old Testament, of what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, historically speaking. And the mention of the name of Jesus the Messiah prompts me to say that much has changed since the days of Nehemiah. 
There are things here that we cannot apply directly to ourselves. Nehemiah lived in the light of God's promise to Abraham. We live in the light of God's fulfillment of that promise in Jesus Christ. God's kingdom is no longer localized in a piece of real estate in the Near East, but extends to the ends of the earth. God's people are no longer primarily the Jews, but they are followers of Jesus Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. God's worship is not centralized in any building made with human hands, but finds its locus and expression in the worldwide community of faith. Much has changed. The promise has transformed into fulfillment. But this much, at least, is as true for us today as it was for God's people in the days of Nehemiah. And it's this. There is an ever-present danger of spiritual decline. There is an ever-present danger of spiritual decline. So often, the life of the Christian church and also of individual believers mirrors what we find here in the book of Nehemiah. Triumph followed by failure. Success giving way to disappointment. After the mountaintop experience, back down to earth with a bump. Consider the story of the early church as chronicled in the New Testament. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out with unprecedented power. Jesus, crucified, risen and ascended, was proclaimed boldly by Peter and others. 3,000 people came to faith in just one day. And from that point, the gospel spread with spectacular success in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But how does the New Testament end? Well, pretty close to the end, there's a letter to each of seven churches addressing lovelessness, false doctrine, unfaithfulness, immorality, complacency, and hard-heartedness. Five out of the seven churches, written to by Jesus through John in the early chapters of Revelation, five out of the seven were in deep spiritual trouble. Looking back now again to Nehemiah 13, what steps do we then need to take if we are to safeguard ourselves and this church against spiritual decline? First, beware of encroaching worldliness. Now, by world, I do not mean the world as created by God. In that sense, of course, the world is very good. God said so. But I'm thinking of the world now, and here's a phrase that I picked up as a young Christian. I'm thinking of the world now as those persons, places, pleasures, and pursuits where God is left out. And much of the time, the New Testament refers to the world in that sense. It was this kind of worldliness to which the Israelites succumbed when they allowed, when they allowed the Sabbath to be overrun with commercialism, thus leaving God 
out. It's worldliness like this that the Apostle John had in mind when he wrote, do not love the world or anything in the world. His first epistle, chapter 2 and verse 15. That's what Paul was thinking of when he urges, do not be conformed to the world, or in J.B. Phillips' famous translation, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. And that's precisely what happened to Demas, you remember, one-time associate of Paul. Demas has deserted me, says Paul to Timothy, having loved agape, interestingly, having loved this present world. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. Now, of course, there are many persons, places, pleasures, and pursuits that are not actually evil, but which still carry a subtle and powerful danger. I do not condemn television, computer games, or social networking, but like many other things, they can have act as powerful distractions that draw us away from the weightier matters of the Christian life. Neil Postman, I think, was not a Christian, but it was he who wrote a book some years ago on television culture entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. Beware of encroaching worldliness. But now secondly, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. I take that phrase word for word from 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now this is not, of course, to say that we should eschew close friendships with people who are not Christians. Many of us have far too few such friendships. But to be yoked together with unbelievers is a different matter. Consider, consider the case of Eliashib the priest in Nehemiah 13. Of all the workers who got stuck into repairing the walls, his name is first on the list. Chapter 3 and verse 1. But then we're told in chapter 13, verse 4 and 5, that he had become entangled with none other than Tobiah, one of the enemies of God's people, and had provided Tobiah with a large room in the temple courts themselves. Tobiah, that implacable opponent of God's work and God's people, and not just with a toehold in Jerusalem, but with a residence in the temple itself. And then we learn in verse 28 that Eliashib had also let one of his sons marry the daughter of Sambalat, that other arch enemy of the Jews and their religion. For a follower of Jesus Christ to be yoked, yoked together with an unbeliever in, let's say, marriage, is not the unpardonable sin, but it can lead to alienation and much sadness. One man summed up his frustration with his wife's devotion to Christ by signing his Valentine's card from the other man in your life. So be careful not to be yoked together with unbelievers. But thirdly, let us seek constant renewal. 
For all I know, the Israelites may have looked back from the vantage point of chapter 13 with some nostalgia. Remember the heady days of revival when God's word spoke so powerfully to us? Remember when we confessed our sins and poured out our hearts in prayer? Remember when we made a Solomon covenant with God to be his people? Remember when we marched around Jerusalem on top of the walls? They were great days. But simply looking back will do the no good at all. And we too cannot rest upon past blessings and achievements. No individual or church can claim to be God's regardless of past experiences and achievements unless they can show some evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives today. So we might well pray as we seek constant renewal with the psalmist, Lord, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Nehemiah lived in the days of promise. We live in the days of the fulfillment of that promise. And we look forward to the final consummation of that promise. That reading from Hebrews settles on the one hand that God's victory in Jesus Christ is absolutely, absolutely assured. He has offered once for all sacrifice for sin. But on the other hand, we do not yet see all things under his feet. We're not there yet. There will come a day when disappointment and failure will be behind us at last, when all God's purposes shall be accomplished, when Christ shall usher in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. But no, we're not there yet. For now there is a race to be run, a fight to be fought, an enemy to be resisted, a prize to be won. And so as we take our leave of Nehemiah and the book that bears his name, let us then post a guard against all that threatens our spiritual vitality and pray to our God for the enablement that only he can give. And let's do both of these things with all the passionate zeal of that man of God who was a man of faith as much as he was a man of action. But please, no hair pulling. Let's pray. Gracious God, we have considered together the joys, the thanksgivings, the delight of your people and then their downfall, and their need for repeated renewal and reformation. We pledge ourselves now to individual and collective watchfulness, to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Because, Lord, we want not simply to bump along the bottom, making mistakes, and being neglectful of you and your honour and your worship and your service. But we want to serve your purposes in this generation. Grant us your grace. Grant us the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.